Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to the Hands-On Theology Podcast. I'm John Davis, uh, and I'm the minister at Columbia Christian Church here in Columbia, Kentucky. And today we have a very special guest, uh, not my wife, as is typical, but today's guest on the podcast is Chris Martin. Uh, Chris is the author of a forthcoming book. Uh, Actually, when this releases, it will already be out, uh, but it's forthcoming as we record. The book's title is Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media, uh, publishes February 1st with B&H. Uh, and Chris is also uh, multifaceted in his work life, and we'll talk about some of his other projects here in just a moment. But I want to throw it over to Chris right now and let Chris kind of introduce himself, tell you a little bit about himself, especially for most of our listeners uh, who might not know anything about Chris. Chris, why don't you tell them who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Martin. I uh, currently serve at Moody Publishers based out of Chicago, Illinois attached to the Moody Bible Institute and Moody Radio, if some of your listeners have heard of those institutions. Uh, Moody Publishers publishes Christian books, uh, and also books that have a Christian worldview but are written explicitly for non-Christians. So one of our most well-known books is uh, The Five Love Languages, which is exactly one of those kinds of books where uh, it's obviously written by a Christian author and has Christian themes, but is not written specifically for a Christian audience. And so I'm grateful to serve at Moody Publishers, and uh, I get to do a handful of different projects there. Um, I get to help build a really cool new website, which we'll talk a little bit about, and help edit books, um, which is just really fun. I've spent a number of, really, my whole career, um, I graduated from college in 2013. My whole career has been in Christian publishing, uh, which I never imagined going into. When I was getting a Bible degree in my undergraduate program, I the idea of working in Christian publishing was never even on my mind. I assume I'd be going into pastor a church. Um, that's really the only form of ministry that I felt the Lord could call me to. I guess I just didn't really think much about parachurch or, or other kinds of ministries. And um, and the Lord has led me through a, a wild journey in Christian publishing, and I've been so grateful for it. And in a lot of roles in the past, and this obviously feeds into a lot of what I write in terms of service and, and on the internet through my newsletter, um, most of my work has been in like the digital content realm of Christian publishers. So uh, the last job I had for my seven years at Lifeway Christian Resources was leading uh, their social media efforts. So I was the head of social media at Lifeway, which means I ran the primary accounts for Lifeway, but then also oversaw our massive social media footprint of over 250 accounts and 60 social media managers. So uh, I spent a lot of time in digital content for good and for ill. It shaped me in in interesting ways, good and bad. And um, and just in the last handful of years, really since like 2015, 2016, I started to study more. I used to love studying the strategy behind social media and creating content on the internet. And I still do like doing that. Um, but I started studying more of the sort of spiritual, philosophical, emotional underpinnings and, and effects of social media on us beyond basic kind of surface level strategy things. And so that's really what led to me writing terms of service and really wanting to spend a lot of time doing the best ministry I can using what I think is a gift of writing that the Lord has given me to um, help us critically some ask some critical questions of these digital platforms we've so uncritically embraced for a number of years now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll say from the, from the start here, from the get, that I am not anti-social media. Um, you'll rarely, if ever, hear me tell people, just delete your accounts, delete your apps. I think that is probably healthy for some folks. I think that is maybe a good step. 
But I, I think if we have this idea that deleting our accounts or, or logging out is somehow going to uh, extract the influence of social media in our lives, we're sorely mistaken. And we'll learn that the hard way. And so I think our best course of action is not to try to extract these forms of media and technology from our lives, but to learn how to live like Christ among them. And that's so much of what I try to do in terms of service and, and otherwise. So that's that's kind of my heart and where I'm at and, and a little bit of how I got to where I am. And, and so I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah. And Chris, real quick, tell us a little bit about your personal life, your family life, uh, like where you live, uh, what your family's like. Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is in the northeast corner of Indiana. My wife and I are both from there. We both went to Taylor University, which is a Christian liberal arts school for our undergraduate degrees. We got married in 2013 and came down to Nashville because I got a job at Lifeway. Um, I earned my MDiv through Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2017 uh, while I was employed at Lifeway. And uh, my wife and I uh, lived just outside Nashville uh, in, in a, well, I think it's technically part of Nashville in a little suburb called Hermitage for a while, which is just east of the city. And then uh, in 2016, we moved here to Murfreesboro, which is a bit further southeast of, of Nashville proper. I consider it a suburb. A lot of locals don't consider it a suburb. And I'm like, man, I've been on I-24 at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. It's a suburb. Trust me. Um, so anyway, I, I, uh, I live outside Nashville, and we have a daughter. Her name is Maggie. She's almost two years old. And, uh, and a dog named Rizzo, named for the former first baseman for the Chicago Cubs, hopefully also maybe future first baseman of the Chicago Cubs, but that's another topic for another day. So that's a little bit about me and, and my family, and it's a wonderful little family, and I'm so grateful to God for it. Gotcha. Yeah, this this has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, but I play guitar, and I'm really into to guitar music, so Fort Wayne, Indiana is the home of Sweetwater, the big guitar warehouse, Superstore, uh, Dream you know, get online and, and look at stuff you, you can't afford. And then um, East Nashville, man, East Nashville. I, I know tons of people who play on East Nashville. I don't know them personally, but I know them like through YouTube and stuff. So oh, that's yeah. where it's at. Yeah, I have a handful of friends who work there at Sweetwater. It's funny, like Sweetwater's what so many people know Fort Wayne for, especially down here in the Nashville area. Yeah. But, but like it only became a thing like toward the end of my high school years, um, like it was not, I just started to hear about it like around the time I was graduating. And so it's so funny that a lot of people have made the connection and I'm like, yeah, that's a thing. I don't know a whole lot about, I mean, I have friends who work there, but, um, but yeah, so it's funny that you, you made that connection because naturally here in Nashville, a lot of my friends are aware of, of aware of, uh, Sweetwater and what they do. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so since we're going to spend most of our time talking about terms of service, let's talk a little bit real quick about your website project. Uh, BibleToLife.com. And the reason I want Chris to talk about this a little bit, especially here on this podcast, is because um, that website is, it just has a lot to do with what we're trying to do here on the Hands-On Theology podcast. So tell everybody a little bit about this new venture of yours and this new website and what it's about and what it's for. Sure. So BibleToLife.com was a project that Moody Publishers wanted to work on for, wanted to create for a long time. Um, They didn't have it in name, you know, they didn't have this perfect picture of what it would look like. But for a long time, Moody Publishers wasn't doing a whole lot of long form content on the Internet. And they said, hey, we've been a Christian publisher publishing books for over 100 years. We think that there's more that we could do on the Internet to serve people who are looking for helpful Christian content on the Internet. Not that they think that there's not enough of that out there. I mean, there's tons of that out there, as we're all aware. And and I don't think we're we're lacking a whole lot in, in a lot of those areas. But. Uh, Moody has a unique perspective, and they they have author 
Um, they have author relationships that they that they can uh, use for the good of, of people who are on the internet and, and uh, they want to steward their resources well. And so when I hopped on in, in September of 2020, I said, man, I'd love to lead help lead a project like that if you if you want to get going on it. And so they did. And they said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So in November of 2021, we launched Bible to Life. And really the heart of Bible to Life is just to help people better uh, know the Bible, understand the Bible, uh, engage with the Bible and apply the Bible to their lives and love the Bible. So it's like, uh, really, I think of the content that we, the resources that we create in three separate categories, learn, which that's going to be like factual things. Like what does the Bible say about original sin? You know, we'll have content like that. Just, just help people better understand what the Bible says. Naturally <clears throat> being affiliated with Moody, Bible Institute, we have a number of authors who are Moody professors, who are Bible professors. And so a lot of that kind of content may even be authored by actual Bible college professors, which is pretty cool. Then the we, we want to help people better engage with the scriptures. This is kind of, this could be a lot of things. We want to help people better know how to read the Bible. So this would be like an interpretation, like how do you read poetry as opposed to narrative? Or how do you um, you know, what are some common figures of speech that are used throughout the Psalms? You know, we may have resources that are around those kinds of topics, like how to engage with the scriptures, how to do inductive Bible study, but also wrapped up in that is how to apply them to your life. So what does scripture have to say about how I love a spouse who's, um, you know, who's being mean? Or uh, what does scripture say about am I allowed to get divorced? Uh, or, you know, these are sort of like apply the Bible to my life kinds of questions. So we have a lot of content and resources that will surround this engage idea. And then the final kind of category of content that we want to produce is uh, we want people to love the scriptures. And so we have a lot of devotional resources that just help people better love God and his word. Um, and so naturally being a Christian publisher, we'll publish some, you know, like learning educational resources, but then we also publish a lot of devotional resources and we want to provide some of that in short form on the internet for people as well. So a, a, a big motivation, I'll just share one more thing. A big motivation comes down to search engines and people using them to find the deepest answers to the hardest faith questions that they have. So if someone's going through a really hard season and they're like, they, they're wondering why, why would God let me go through this suffering, this difficulty in my life? Unfortunately, I think it's unfortunate. Some people may disagree. Unfortunately, somebody who has that question in their head and in their heart is as likely today to Google, why is God allowing me to suffer as they are to ask that question of a pastor, parent, or trusted right. friend. Right. Part, partly because of convenience, because it's in their pocket. They don't have to like schedule coffee or something. And partly because it can be kind of, it, it, can, it can be kind of embarrassing to have to like ask your pastor, how could God allow me to suffer? I think a lot of people sure. feel timid about that. Like maybe they should know the answer to that question yeah. or, yeah. or they shouldn't, or, or that they could be reprimanded for even asking that question. People who maybe have had bad experiences in church. And so they would just rather ask Google. It's a lot easier and less risky. Unfortunately, if you were to Google a question like that, or, or how does the Trinity work? Or was Jesus really God? Um, you, when you Google questions like that, you really come up with one of two answers most commonly. You either come up with something that's clearly not trustworthy to the to the learned person. Uh, the person who's Googling may not know that it's not trustworthy. Right, right. Um, but it's clearly like wrong. And maybe, you know, maybe it's even like an atheistic website that's trying to, you know, lead Christians astray or something like that. Or it's something that might be factually correct and, and like, you know, a, a learned 
Christian who's you know has a Bible degree who's spent any time in church may say, well, that's a that's a fine answer to that question. But when they dig in, they can't figure out who even answered it. Or it might just be from a website where someone posted the question and 80 people gave the answer. And this is just one of the 80 answers that came up. And so what we said was, what if we created a website? And this is a long-term goal because building authority in a search engine takes years and probably decades, frankly, um, because that's just how these things work mathematically and such. We said, what if we created a website that tried to provide clear, correct, and trustworthy answers to some of these questions that more and more people are searching for in their Google search bars or wherever else. And uh, so that that's a big heart behind what we're doing. So not everything on the website is based around a question and answer format. A lot, like probably 40% of our content is kind of like that. Uh, and that, that percentage will always be changing. But that's just a significant piece of the heart behind what we're doing. We're not trying to chase controversy. We're not trying to comment on the latest cultural phenomenon. Um, we're just trying to create content that will help people who are maybe poking around on the internet find answers to their kind of deepest faith questions that they may be afraid to ask people that are in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. As a pastor, one of the things I see over and over again is people are so used to Googling the answers to whatever question they have. So got a question about the Bible, got a question about um, following Jesus. I'll, I'll Google it. As a pastor myself who spends all kinds of time online and, and studying these things, I can sift through those those results pretty well, but most people can't. Most people are like, well, I, I don't I don't know this website from that website, from this one, from that one, and I don't know what perspective I'm getting from any of these places, so I'm just going to click on the top, the top hit and the next hit and the next hit and see what they say. And one of the reasons I'd want to recommend something like Bible to Life is instead of Googling something, why don't you go to a trustworthy source like BibleToLife.com where you know what they're putting out is trustworthy from a, a conservative, biblical, evangelical stance, and then you can you know search on that website for what you're trying to find instead of just searching it on the, the, the internet, which has got good and bad all over the place. So yeah, that's great. I'm glad you guys are doing that. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. So Good. Um, so, Chris, let's get into terms of service. Uh, again, for everybody listening, this book, as we are recording, comes out February 1st, as this podcast releases should already be out, Lord willing. Uh, and we're going to just kind of go through the table of contents as a structure uh, for our conversation. Chris, in, in Chapter 1, it's called, How Did the Social Internet Evolve? And I want to ask you specifically, right off the bat, you write about this term... Um, in your newsletter, and and especially in this book, social internet versus social media. What do you mean by that, and what's the difference? Very good question, very important question. And it's funny, I, I wrestled with whether or not to use social media or social internet throughout this book. And frankly, and, and I put in the introduction for anyone who's listening who may read, I explain the difference between the terms in the introduction and and why I use social internet more than social media, though I also say... In the book, we may vacillate between the two, and for all intents and purposes, you can consider them synonymous. Gotcha. Um, but I do, th- I do think there, there is a distinction, at least in my head, and I want to impart that distinction to as many people as I can. Um, the social internet and social media are different in a couple of ways. Uh, Neil Postman, who I really am inspired by to do this work, all, every day I get up to do it. Um, his work, Amusing Ourselves to Death, really was the inspiration for Terms of Service and my desire to use my voice to help us 
wrestle with these things in general. Yeah, it's a wonderful ourselves. book. Yeah, it was published in 1985. It mentions social media not once, obviously, but could not be more relevant to our social media world that we currently live in. Um, and so I highly recommend people read that book, though it's over 25 years old. It could not be more relevant today. Yeah, and the amusing ourselves to death there. It was published the year I was born, and essentially, you'll, what you'll find if you read that book is you'll find television as his kind of main focus. But you can really just apply that straight over to social media, the internet, whatever, in his arguments, and and it's so ahead of its time. Oh yeah, I mean, there's a whole chapter on the telegraph. Which, gosh, you want to talk about ancient technology, the telegraph, and I mean, you just replace the word telegraph with Twitter, and it's like almost. You could just print it today yeah. and it wouldn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's and there's a whole chapter on like televangelists in there. And he Postman is not a Christian, but he's quite sympathetic to the Christian faith. And so his chapter on televangelism and how he fears that he's like from I forget. This is a paraphrase, not an exact quote, but he basically says, I take it that Christianity is a very serious, weighty faith. And my fear is that what televangelists don't realize is that they're cheapening their faith by making it the consumption of the masses via television. And I'm like, my goodness, if that's not social media, I don't know what is. Um, And one of the things that you wrote about that I read in one of your articles was the connection to that, uh, to our modern day politics, right? So televangelists have, have, you know, made entertainment essentially the form of Christianity that, that sells to people. And in our entertainment culture where entertainment has become more important than truth you said well it's no surprise that we end up with the politicians that we end up so to speak sure um, it's same same deal yeah so so okay social internet and social media um he says postman says there's a difference between media and technology and again paraphrasing what he said and, and making it easy to understand because he's quite brilliant and sometimes hard to understand is internet or uh, there's a technology and there's a media and medium on top of a technology. The technology is like the actual, I mean, you can imagine what a technology is. It's almost like to use another analogy for this. It's like the pipes, if you will, the technology is the pipes and the, and the media is the water that runs through the pipes. It's, it's the media is built on top of the technology. So technology is the delivery system. That's right. Technology is, is the sort of infrastructure that undergirds the media that lives on top of it. And, and and the media is the culture you create with a particular technology, I think is how Postman delineate, delineates the two as well. So I use social internet a lot because if we talk about social media, like if I said social media is this or social media is that, you and I and everyone else would like, there'd be three or four apps and logos that pop into our head, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, whatever. My concern regarding our relationship with all of these different technologies and forms of media goes far beyond those apps and logos that you think of. It goes to the technology that's baked into all of these different forms of media that really undergirds all of them. And what I think a lot of us don't realize is like we think of social media, we think of Facebook or Instagram. But the entire internet is social. We're in what's called Web 2.0 right now. Web 1.0, and and actually we're getting into the content of Chapter 1 here. Web 1.0 was like late 90s, very, like really late 90s, like 94 to 99 basically, where none of us were really creating content on the internet. We were just consuming content from the internet. That's called the read era, Web 1.0. Web 2.0 started in 99 and is still continuing to today. It's been quite long. 
It's called the read-write era where we're consuming content from the internet but also putting content onto the internet via social media or whatever other platforms. And so the internet is all social, not just Facebook. Like when you Google what's the internal temperature to which I should be cooking my chicken as you're baking your chicken for dinner tonight, the answer that Google spits back at you was created by a human, at least for now. Like that's a that's a human response to your question. I mean, we just talked about it with Bible to Life. Those are human responses right. to your question. If you look up a Yelp review of a restaurant that you want to take your spouse to this weekend, that's a that is social media. But if I say social media, you don't think of Yelp. Yep. Uh, yep. When That's when right. people inevitably review my book on Amazon, and hopefully there are some good ones and some bad ones in in the beginning of February, um, Amazon book reviews are social media, and this is all part of the social internet. And so I really want us to broaden our understanding of our relationship with the internet and realize that the entire thing is social, not just those three or four apps and logos that pop into your head. Right. That makes total sense. Go ahead. So the chapter one to get to the point of chapter one is really explaining how we got here. So um, here's how we got from a couple of government computers communicating research results to one another in the seventies and eighties to email to AOL producing more compact discs than the entire music industry. <laughs> uh, literally, they were the number one producer of CD-ROMs in the world for a number of years. Um, and and then to where we are, to, to, you know, to Friendster, to MySpace, to where we are today. How did we get here? And that's chapter one. And what's funny is, just very briefly, A, that was the hardest chapter to write because it obviously required a lot of research. Like, I, it's a lot of stuff that I remembered anecdotally, but like, I didn't know that MySpace tried to buy Facebook. Uh, I didn't know, you know, there's so many things that I didn't know. And that was the hardest chapter to write. And I was afraid people wouldn't like it. But when I kind of workshopped the book among a dozen friends or so who have no real interest in social media outside of being social media users, the most popular chapter by and large was chapter one. So hmm. uh, if you're curious how we got the internet and how it is today, chapter one, which is just 18 pages or so, may be of interest. Oh no, that stuff's fascinating. I mean, I'm I'm 37. How old are you, Chris? 31. Okay, so I'm I'm 37. I when I was um when I was like uh 10, um 11, 12. That was right when the internet in people's homes thing started, and so I remember all this stuff. And I think people are just fascinated reading about stuff that happened like when they grew up and stuff like that. So I I can totally see how that would be one of your most po popular chapters. Chapter two, how does the social internet work? What do you do there? Yeah, so this really gets into like the in, really breaking down the technology. Um, like how how does the internet work? What are what are the algorithms? How did we start using the social internet? Like what was appealing of the social internet? Why were we using it? You know, anonymity was of interest to us. The community provided by the social internet, and then what keeps us coming back? I mean, there's so much data today that says social media makes us miserable. Um, and, and research, I won't go into this too much, but like research around social media's effects on mental health is so difficult to do because it's hard to, so many factors can affect people's mental health that it's yeah. hard to ever pinpoint one in particular. But finally, we're starting to get some really good data, not causative, like social media causes mental health problems, but some pretty strong 
cor- correlative data, cor- yeah. correlations between yes. social media use and and a d- degradation of m- mental health. Um, so, but like we keep using it. So, like, what keeps us coming back? Like, how does it work? How does this technology that is the social internet? What keeps us coming back? Why are we interested in it? Talking about how our brains have been hacked. Great yeah. quote from Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook. Uh, depicted by Justin Timberlake in the social network, if you've seen mm-hmm. the social network movie. Um, and so anyway, that really breaks down kind of how this all works and just some of the technology stuff. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, reading Cal Newport recently and uh, his book, Digital Minimalism, talks a lot about, um, you know, what what social media has done to our brains in a um, in a way to, to make us keep coming back for more, to make us cycle through our apps, you know, even mindlessly and when we don't have anything to check. Um, so chapter three gets really into, um, I think, what our listeners are, are really interested in and what I'm really interested in. And then chapter three is kind of a segue to the rest of your book. How does the social Internet affect our lives? That big, broad question that we'll drill down into with the other chapters. So let's let's go there. Now we're talking about what's what's the. What's the way that this actually makes a difference in our lives, positive, negative, whatever? Yeah, yeah. How, how does the social internet affect our lives? It's exactly what you said, and I'm glad you kind of picked up on that. Like, it's really a transition from let's take the technology for what it is. Let's not talk about its effect on us quite yet. Like, you know, chapters one and two are like, here's how we got here. Here's how this stuff works. And chapter three, like you said, is really the segue kind of going down the funnel into or the rabbit hole even more appropriately how is this starting to affect us? So where where the whole of part two, the next few chapters we'll talk about, is really breaking down some very specific ways the internet affects us. Um, chapter three here, the end of part one, is really just like a 30,000 foot view, even just like jabbing at some topics that maybe didn't merit a whole chapter on their own, but did merit three or four pages about tribalism or polarization, which some of those topics come up in later chapters as well. But in, in chapter three, how does the social internet affect our lives? It was very much a broad brush, big picture, almost if you don't read any other chapter in the book, read this chapter kind of vibe yeah. um, of, of how the social internet affects us in ways we maybe don't realize. Gotcha. So let's, let's kind of bullet point these these uh, next few chapters where it talks about five ways, part two is five ways the social internet shapes us. Chapter four is, we believe attention assigns value. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that we have been, our minds have been reshaped by the internet as such that um, because of metrics like likes, follows, retweets, shares, etc., because of the obsession with what goes viral, um, we have become of the mind that how much attention something gets determines how valuable it is. There's an inherent belief that if something goes viral, it must be interesting. And that's just not necessarily the case. Or even just something that goes viral must be valuable. I've right. long joked that I've long joked that if the if social media is a game, which a lot of us think of it as a game, even if we don't actually like explicitly think of it as a game. If social, if social media is like a video game, the way you win the video game is by getting on the Ellen DeGeneres show or good morning America, because like those two programs, which like I grew up watching good morning America when I was a kid. And I remember like my mom watching Oprah and then like Ellen when I was, when I was also, you know, toward the end of being at home. And I just know from seeing clips on the internet or seeing it at the gym or whatever, both of these shows will so often just fill their airwaves with, 
hey, this kid went viral for playing the guitar really cool. Isn't he great? Look, he's so cute. Oh, we're going to have him here on the show. Wow, isn't he amazing? He's an amazing guitar player. Hey, here's a here's a $20,000 gift card from Sweetwater to go buy whatever kind of guitar you want, you know? And it's just like, what, like, what, what are we doing here? Like, yeah. what, you know, it's, and it's like, but for a lot of folks, whether it's, you know, look at Chewbacca mom, look at all of these different viral phenomena. It's like, we, we like hold up these, these phenomena, these viral people or whatever is like, wow, like, look at that. Isn't that so amazing? So anyway, it's a whole chapter on this wrong idea that if something gets more attention it must be more valuable than that which doesn't get quite as much attention yeah and one of the things i think that that comes out of that is is we teach our ourselves we teach our kids we teach the next generation to pursue this shallow um you know not as valuable kind of thing so that they can get attention and that's the end goal of it is just just attention and likes in one of your articles, you wrote about three values of social media, um, and they were speed, shareability, and entertainment. The the speed is like, well, how, how quick can it spread, right? The And it fuels things like myths and lies and fake news because we got to get it out there really fast. The, the shareability, you know, if something is more likely than not to go viral, will it get views? Will it get eyeballs? It, it fuels clickbaity kind of headlines. It fuels shallow content versus substance. And then third, the third value of social media that you wrote about that I thought was really good was entertainment, which fuels mindless content versus something that makes us learn or makes us grow as a person. So, you know, put all that together and it's it's one of the ways that social media is negatively affecting us because of the values. And like you kind of summed it up in your chapter title, attention assigns value. Yeah. Um, so chapter five, we trade our privacy for expression. What do you mean by that? Dude, this is a topic I'm going to, I'm going to restrain myself, but this <laughs> is a topic that I could rant on for an entire podcast episode. I don't know what book I'm going to write next, but this is something that I could write an entire book on. It's not a particularly Christian issue. Um, and, and in fact, I should say this, if you pick up this book, I wrote it obviously from a Christian worldview, because that's, it's hard to divorce that from my writing naturally and as it should be. But I wrote it so that it's easily read by Christians and non-Christians alike. You'll find in part three, as we'll explore here in a minute, part three, a lot of the applications I give are like, I do provide scripture as to like why these applications would be worthy and, and, and help us be more Christ-like. But much of part one and part two, I try not to make it a theology of social media or something like that. A, because there are plenty of people who do that kind of thing very well. And yeah. B, I want this to be a book that you could give to a neighbor who's not a believer and they don't maybe feel turned off by it because, oh, you want me to read this book by a Christian who's just going to tell me how terrible I am for using Instagram? It's like, no, 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 no. I, I want this to be a very easy discussion to have with believers and non-believers alike. And so anyway, I wrote the book with that in mind. And that comes through pretty, pretty clear here in chapter five because – I don't know that scripture really has a ton to say about trading our privacy for personal expression. Uh, however, I do think it is foolish to do so, and scripture has plenty to say about foolishness and wisdom. Um, my my passion here is um, I don't think we this this really like I've said at the maybe at the beginning of our discussion here. The goal of so much of what I try to do is just to get us to try to ask critical questions of these platforms and to have a more critical thinking air to our relationship with them not reject them outright or never use them but just to ask hard questions of a lot of these platforms for instance like why does spotify need to have access to my photos on my phone 
they ask for it. Why does Spotify need to have that? I, I use Spotify. I love Spotify. Like I, I use it every day. I listen to music every minute that I'm not in a meeting during the day via Spotify. I have no problem with them. But like when you first download the app, they ask for they ask for access to your photos, theoretically to get a profile image or whatever else. But like, do I need to give them access to everything? My wife and I made a conscious decision when we were pregnant with our daughter that we weren't going to post any pictures of her on social media so far as you know we could handle it yeah. she's going to be in a wedding this spring which we expect will maybe be her social media debut but we we have intentionally not posted pictures of her online and a number of family and uh, family members and friends are like yeah, that's weird like are are you like aren't people aren't people like mad at you for that like like how are you getting away with that and, and i just have said before i wrote about this on the newsletter i'm like if you went back to 2004 or five and told parents 17 years ago that in 10 years uh, it's going to be totally normal for you to post pictures of your children on the internet, perhaps even half clothed in the bathtub or doing silly things or things like that. And in fact, if you don't do that in about 10 years, you're going to be weird. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be the weird one for not doing it. They would have looked at you in 2003 and 2004 and said, you're insane. Like, in 2003, 2004, people were still wondering if they should be putting their credit card information into Amazon, who now does hundreds of millions of dollars a day in business or whatever. Right. So I, I think the fact that we've so quickly gone from you're weird if you post pictures of your kid on the internet to you're weird if you don't post pictures of your kids on the internet is kind of scary just how quickly we've gone there. I In this chapter, I detail, like, I'm hard on Facebook, and I think for totally good reason. Um, Facebook has played fast and loose with user data and and has hurt user privacy, not only on their platform, but across the internet for a solid decade or more and more at this point. And a lot of us just don't care. And let me say, if anyone's listening right now, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to give Facebook, like, my location and whatever else and not even like why do i care i don't have anything to hide it's the number one response i get when i'm having this discussion i don't have anything to hide like why do why do i care i'll turn on location services for instagram so that they so that they can figure out what the temperature is so i can add that to my instagram story or whatever i mean this is what people do it sounds silly but this is what we do and without even blinking an eye or thinking about it and i say in response to i don't have anything to hide i'm like okay next time you go to the bathroom don't close the door in your house you don't have anything to hide do you yeah. like i mean you know we're not we're not trying to hide anything well we we don't have anything to hide that doesn't mean we don't like privacy and we don't value privacy and i think we have we so desperately want to express ourselves and feel important and accrue that attention which i call the currency of the social internet we want to accrue attention to feel valuable that we are willing to give up our privacy in order to express ourselves if in, in an effort to accrue as much attention as possible. And I think it's a terrible trade that we need to think more more critically about. That's good. That's good. That makes me want to read that chapter. Um, chapter six, we've kind of hit on this uh, already, but you say we pursue affirmation instead of truth. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So a little bit of this goes with the attention and value chapter. However, this is my chapter... Um, about conspiracy and how social media lends itself to conspiratorial thought. Now, I, I'm not. Um, I, I identify a few major conspiracy theories, both both decades ago and modern, and uh, it probably will upset some folks, but that's okay. Uh, and it's really this whole chapter is about how social media pours gasoline on uh, fake news, conspiratorial thought, 
the idea that there's always some deeper, more nefarious story to what's going on. Conspiratorial thought, conspiracy theories are not new. We live in an age of conspiracy. Uh, we've, we, if you just look at conspiracy as the literal definition is two or more people conspiring to do something nefarious, we have seen plenty of that in our lifetime, haven't we? Um, I mean, I was 10 years old when, when 9-11 happened. So, like, we, ha- we live in an age of conspiracy. So it's only natural that we would have tons of theories about why the why certain conspiracies are happening or not happening. Uh, and I think social media really dumps gasoline on dumps jet fuel on that fire. And um, I think it's important that we realize that I don't even want to dog people who have ascribed to conspiracy theories. That's not my goal. My goal is to help us realize that these platforms are designed to dupe us into believing conspiracy theories and like they're just perfect for it. And I'm not here to necessarily police people and tell them what what to buy into or not buy into. All I want people to do is to realize that the platforms are geared for those purposes, like they're they're set up to be, be very easily exploited for conspiracy theories and related phenomena and we should be aware of the proclivity of the technology to be used in that way so that we can maybe just head have our heads on swivels a little bit more yeah one one practical way that i've seen this in my own life and in other people's is you'll see a a very exciting salacious headline you'll share it with other people because it's outrageous and you'll learn later that 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 actually was not true and i i went ahead and shared something that actually wasn't wasn't real. And I, I played into um, that gaining a hearing with more people. So I've been there. I've done that myself. And, and I have to be careful, you know, checking up on the headlines that I read and the things that I share. Um, you talked about in chapter seven, it's titled, We Demon- Demonize People We Dislike. This right here is one of the reasons I'm really thankful that you talk about the social internet, not just social media, because I see a tendency within myself when I get on politically focused news websites to demonize this person or that person. And it seems like that's that's all they want to do. Um, and s- the social internet, not just social media, fuels that because it's it includes things like news websites versus just the apps. But um, so chapter seven, we demonize people we dislike. Anything you want to say there? Yeah, I think in many corners of the social internet, there's a lie that lingers that people who disagree with me cause me harm. And in this chapter, I really, um, I really get, really just rail on the idea that pe- that that we can't handle people disagreeing with us. Um, I, I talk about anti fragility and the importance of being anti fragile, which is a really important principle um, from Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Um, and and I talk about how it's okay to feel unsafe, like it's okay to feel um, this sort of psychological victimization of like feeling like we can't read blog posts or articles or watch videos from people who don't believe the same thing as us. And then like, it's really easy to look at like the, like the liberal side and say like, like snowflakes, like they can't handle people who disagree with them. I'm like, bro, I see Christians whine and complain about people that they disagree with getting into their feeds all the time because I've worked in Christian internet content my whole life. Like Christians are just as bad at listening from atheists or agnostics as liberal people are hearing from conservatives. So I don't even want to hear like it's a them issue. And so I, I just think that 
it's important for us to realize that we very easily and quickly make demons or you know make enemies out of people we dislike or with whom we disagree. And I think that's a problem. And again, I think the social internet has made this very easy to do. Um, and, and the next chapter, chapter eight, which we'll talk yeah. about here in a second, is a kind of companion chapter to this chapter seven. Yeah, you, you can just go right into that. The chapter eight kind of seems like step two in that process. We destroy the people that we demonize. Um, is this a like a commentary on cancel culture or where are you going with this one? That's right. Yep. So we demonize the people we dislike and then we destroy the people we demonize. So we take somebody who like, I don't like the fact that they hold this particular th theology or philosophical or political point of view. I don't like that. And I'm going to make them terrible. I'm going to make them an enemy for it. And I'm going to like, I'm going to over exaggerate their perspective or their point of view. I'm going to demonize them because I dislike them. That's chapter seven. And then what we do is, but now that we've stripped them of their humanity, now we have, we feel as though we have license to destroy their lives or at least destroy them in our own minds. And so, yeah, this is commentary on cancel culture, which is a huge problem. Uh, I think, unfortunately, and I'm not trying to get political here. In fact, I, I find myself politically homeless at times. But, like, I, I think cancel culture has been, like, weaponized by conservative circles. And I, I don't th – I think it – I think both sides are very good at canceling people. I don't think it's – like, I, I think – I don't think it's a unique problem one way or the other. I've seen Christians cancel folks for theological things. I've seen uh, uh, non-Christians or even liberal political folks cancel conservatives for various things. So I, I think both uh, both kind of ends of the political and ideological perspective commit this crime. However, I, I do think that it's it's easy to get caught up in cancel culture. It's really easy to get caught up in like virtual mob violence and try to achieve mob justice on social media. And I think cancel culture makes promises that can never fulfill uh i think like and i, I get into this a bit how like I, I think i do uh that we um cancel culture is kind of predicated on this idea that you can hold people accountable for some kind of social ill or you know less than a crime i mean i think people who yeah. committed crimes should probably be held accountable right uh, yeah i see what you're saying but, but like people who have committed some sort of social taboo or ill or or whatever should somehow be destroyed and be held accountable for that people on the internet can't hold the person that they're canceling accountable it's just not possible right um they, they think they do because they like get them fired but then they can't keep them from going off and doing something else that they don't agree with and so anyway i really get into how cancel culture can't deliver on its promises and how it it's really going to end up canceling itself i think in the long run but anyway that's that's chapter eight yeah, in, in my like um, in my life and my circles that I, I I'm in because I'm a preacher and I'm in ministry, you'll see a lot of people online that their bread and butter, what gets them attention and clicks and views, is pointing out here's such and such celebrity pastor preacher whatever, and here's why he he's so horrible. Everybody can can you imagine, um, you know, the outrage of that we should all have at this person, uh, and that's that's how they get views. That's their that's kind of their moniker. That's what they do, and it it does get views. It gets a lot of clicks and attention. Um, it's it's sad, really, because that's what they're making their 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 identity out of is canceling other people or trying to get other people canceled. Um, so part three, where do we go from here? And part three, I can tell by your by your titles of your chapters, is kind of a different um it's a different section it's a different mood you're trying to do something different here in part three so 
Part three says, where do we go from here? In chapter nine, you say, study history. That's the the title of chapter nine. What are you talking about there? What do you mean? Yeah, and we can run through these rather quickly because, in fact, I I wrote them to be like 2,000-word chapters. They're very short, very quick hit. Um, These are all meant to be like, okay, so now that we've looked at all the ways social media affects us, mostly in in negative ways, because, again, a lot of folks may be, you know, oh, this book is so discouraging. It's so negative. Well, I don't think any of us need to be reminded of like the good social media like the reasons we like social media i mean we use it so i'm pretty sure we have a good grip of of why we like social media it's entertaining connects us with friends and family but i do think we need to think more deeply about the negative ways that it affects us because a lot of us just like to ignore those or maybe we aren't even aware of them so if you feel like this book has been negative as is whether as you're reading it or as we've talked through it yeah it is and kind of by design um but in part three where do we go from here it's a bit of my hope to say all right now that we've now that we've seen how damaged and messed up everything is, and we've assessed it a bit, how do we move on? Like, how do we live with this technology that we cannot that we cannot extract from our lives, which is good. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. How do we learn to live with it? How do we root ourselves in, in real offline life? Online life is real too, but you know, in an offline life, how do we root ourselves in, in what seems more real uh, than what's online? And so, these quick hit chapters study history pretty straightforward i love studying history studying as someone who's always worked on the internet and always worked in social media studying history whether it's like native american history like empire of reading books like empire of the summer moon or reading books like i love early american history like what was going on around the revolutionary war things like that or even pre-revolutionary war i love reading things like that and so learning where we've been and where and figuring out how that connects to where we are today, I think is just very, you know, Ecclesiastes says nothing new under the sun. And go. I think reading reading and studying history really helps hit, hammer that home because with as fast as everything is progressing these days, it really does feel like there are some new things under the sun sometimes. And, and studying history helps us realize that there really is nothing new under the sun. In chapter 10, admiring creation, um, is is really exactly what it sounds like um i'm i'm blessed to live right next door to like a 130 acre park um where my wife and i go for a walk every day after work and um i and i'm also like an amateur bird watcher by that i mean i have more bird feeders and bird houses than the average person and i do have an app on my phone that helps me identify the birds that come nice. by my windows nice. um so uh so yeah i don't have binoculars or anything like that but i do i do try to like figure out who they are and all that so I, I just think admiring creation, like going on a walk without your headphones, without your phone, without listening to a podcast or music, even worship music, turn it off. Leave, leave your phone at home, or, or if you want to be safe, take your phone and leave your headphones at home. And um, just admire creation all around you. Admire the world God has made and and uh, and focus less on the pixels quite so much. I can keep going. Do you have any comments on the last two? I can keep going on the further. Uh, no, other than you should get yourself a pair of binoculars because that sounds really yeah. good. I, I, I have weirdly, you know, when I sit on my porch, I don't know what it is, but I totally get people who are bird watchers. It is, it is a blessing for my brain and my heart. So I get it, man. Yeah. Dude, if, I mean, if you can keep, like, if you can kind of track birds like obviously i mean even down to here in nashville it's a little chilly these days to be sitting out on the back porch and watching birds flutter between bird feeders and bird houses but like spring like march april you can watch the same like i start i start to like come up with names for the blue jays that hang out in my backyard because it is just the same three or four you know yeah. like i can tell yeah um and and so it's fun it's fun to start like if you can keep track of one or two here and there and 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 actually they become characters in, in a way i guess you could say 
Um, and they're not just like, oh, there's just a bunch of random birds flying away. Um, yep. So uh, chapter 11 is value silence. I think a lot of us should be quieter than we are, myself included. I, I say the I, all of these things I try to live out myself. I'm not prescribing them to anybody that I'm not trying to do myself. So I think a lot of us could benefit from valuing silence and speaking more, whether virtually or offline. Um, and so taking days where you're just like, you know what, I'm not really going to – in this story I share – in this chapter I share a story – about how when I was like in middle school, it was probably just like teenage angst. But like I would have these silent days where I would like, I'm not going to even talk to any of my friends unless they talk to me first. And it was like really bizarre. My friend, I remember <laughs> my friends being like, are you okay? Like, are you fine? And again, it maybe was just teenage angst. But I, I would intentionally just try to take in the world around me on those days and just try to like watch social activity and, and like just kind of be a fly on the wall of my own life for a day or two. I think a lot of us, as weird and, and odd and teenager as that sounds, I think a lot of us could maybe benefit from that kind of thing from time to time. Um, oh, ab- absolutely. I, I think yeah. one of the things that, that we do as a culture is we avoid um, getting in touch with the, the things that are going on inside of us, whether good or bad. We avoid it by busyness and noise. And it, it's, it's a way that people can really crash emotionally and in their inner life later in life because they've never they've never come to terms with who they are or their emotions or the, the things that are going on inside of them because the, they can just distract themselves from it all the time. Yeah, exactly. I'm guilty of this very much. So it, it's I remember writing a, a few of these chapters that one included was like I was coaching myself as much as I was trying to as much as I was trying to encourage readers. Um, chapter 12 is pursue humility. That one's pretty straightforward. Um, the social internet and our, our interactions on social media inflame pride uh, very easily. And so I think we need to realize, I mean, this is the case even just because of our own sin, but if we hope to be humble at all in, in our day, we need to pursue it seriously. And so I just talk about the importance of pursuing humility and, and what that looks like when it see, when the, when the internet makes it feel like the whole world revolves around us and we can maybe be the main character in our lives and the heroes of our own story uh, just I write about the importance of trying to be humble amidst amidst that culture. Yeah, the um, the social media and the social internet values pride, and the loudest voice gets the attention and all that stuff. And then Jesus on the other side says, "If you exalt yourself, God will humble you. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you." But you have to defer that that gratification until pretty much eternity. Um, so that's a that's a wonderful countercultural thing that you're putting in there to push back on what social media and the social internet is doing to us when we just kind of take it in. Right. I'll put these last two chapters together because they really go hand in hand. Chapter 13 and chapter 14. 13 is establish accountability and 14 is build friendships. Um, I think it's I think it's pretty clear and some people may disagree with me, but the relationships you build on the internet, while valuable, um, are never going to be as valuable and as deep as relationships that primarily live offline. I have actually made a number of friends uh, with whom I am primarily friends with them on the internet, and we see each other once or twice a year at big events, Christian events, or, or whatever. We cross paths because we live in maybe the same general few states, and we'll stop by on a trip or something like that. Uh, but most of our interactions via text message or via social media or, or things like that, um, your relationships with people that you see every day from your church or your community or your family, those are all going to be much more uh, valuable and deep, or they should be, 
than the ones that you're having on the internet. There's only so much intimacy that internet-based friendships and relationships can provide. Uh, and they're great. They're valuable. Like, I'm grateful for my friends that I primarily communicate with on the internet. And I don't think our friendship is not valuable. However, I know that if I'm having a really rough day or something happens to our family and we need help in a crunch, my internet friends aren't going to really be able to do a whole lot for me. And my offline friends who actually have proximity to me are going to be there for me in a way my virtual friends cannot. Uh, in the same way, and this is a point that I kind of end on as far as the book is concerned. Um, one of my biggest concerns with the internet and our relationship with it and our attempts to build community on it is that we desperately want to be known. Um, no, we desperately want to be loved, but we're really afraid of being known. Tim Keller talks about this a bit in regard to marriage in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Yeah. Um, but the internet really provides a really nice vector, a really nice environment for us to be known by thousands of people and to feel loved and admired by all the attention that we're given, right? Feel valuable. We, we want to feel loved and known in a very surface level way. But we're really, we're afraid, the, the reason so many of us have pursued social media community versus offline embodied community is that the internet provides relationships that make us feel loved without having to be known. And offline relationships make us feel loved in a deeper way, but also require us to be known in a deeper way. And a lot of us are afraid of being known so deeply. We're afraid of the vulnerability that comes with that. We, we want attention, but we don't want intimacy is another way that I would put that. Um, we're, or or we, we want intimacy, but we're afraid of the vulnerability that comes with that. And so really my call in establishing accountability and building friendships is, hey, look, your relationship with the social internet is, is going to come unhinged at some point. Have friends who can call you out on that that's the accountability bit and build friendships just offline and with the recognition that those are going to be much more valuable to you and to the other party in the relationship than anything you're ever going to build on the internet. Yeah. One of the ways that I think that's just extremely applicable in my life and in the lives of Christians is our relationship to our local church and our involvement in our local church. Um, I think in this, this next generation coming up, the church is going to have a really uphill battle to fight against people's natural inclinations to avoid embodied community and to to get it online and then you can go into all this discussion on you know what is church is virtual church church there, there's all kinds of books and discussion on that but that is that that's kind of the the underpinnings of all of that right there in chapters 13 and 14 so that's really good all right so chris anything else you want to say about your book before we we let everybody go not really, man. I just hope it's really helpful for as many people uh, as possible. Again, I, I wrote it. Don't go into it thinking like, I don't know, any number. I, I feel like if I pick up a book by a Christian on social media, I might be a little nervous, frankly. Like, oh, man, is this guy just going to talk about how terrible everything is, how yeah. terrible, you know, how, how, how Instagram keeps me from Jesus, or is he just going to throw a bunch of Bible verses at me? I, I really wrote this book. Though it is discouraging, I wrote it from a compassionate heart as a, as a means of helping us have a more critical relationship with these platforms that we have so uncritically welcomed into our lives and into our pockets. And my hope is that if you read this book, you'll have um, a more measured 
a more wise relationship with social media. Again, like I said at the top, my application for any of you listening, anyone who picks up the book is is not delete your accounts. It's all evil. Again, if you find yourself addicted to it, having a relationship with it that is always unhealthy, something like that may be wise. But I think this is a situation where we, we're never going to be able to escape this technology. For those of us who are alive today and continue to live for the next decades, we're never going to be able to escape this technology. So rather than try and fail at extracting it from our lives, let's learn how to live like Christ among this technology, among these various forms of media, so that we can harvest the good out of it and and leave the bad to the side and not get caught up in all the bad that comes. And I just think that we've overlooked a lot of the bad as we've uncritically embraced these things and, and checked yes on the terms of service um, that we've done so many times. And, uh, and I just want us to think more deeply is all. So I hope, I hope if you pick up this book, uh, you don't feel too discouraged and you're primarily led to just think more deeply about your relationship with these things. Nice. So just for everybody, the book is called Terms of Service. Uh, release date is February 1st. Should be out wherever books are sold as you're listening to this podcast. Uh, also remember to check out BibleToLife.com, uh, Chris and Moody Publishers uh, content website that's being uh, expanded every day right now. Uh, more and more content coming up on that regularly. I uh, want to thank Chris so much for being on our podcast. Chris, how can people find you on social media? Yeah, so my primary social media platform that I use to interact with folks is uh, Twitter. So at Chris Martin seventeen is where you'll find me on Twitter. I have other ones, but usually just use those for friends and family. Um, so if you want to connect with me, have questions about the book, love the book and want to tell me, hate the book and want to tell me, um, reach out to me. Reach out to me on Twitter at Chris Martin seventeen, and I would love to uh, answer any questions and help you out however I can. All right, there we go. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, as always, we want to close with Deuteronomy 32:47, talking about God's Word and Scripture. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. We'll see you guys next time.